If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 20. Our Old Testament reading will be Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. The entire chapter, chapter 20. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. No, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And turn in Matthew. For our New Testament reading as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, we take up Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on Our great God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. It accomplishes the very purpose which you have determined in sending it forth. And so we ask that you would be pleased to bless us by the reading and the preaching of your word. Open our hearts. May we feast upon it as upon heavenly manna as we look into the incarnate word the Lord Jesus Christ, who continues to minister to us now as uh, the greater Solomon, uh, the promised one, uh, the king, unlike any other king. Guard my mind and guide my words, uh, Lord, unto the heart, as only your spirit can, uh, such that we are confirmed in the faith or retrieved or built up, or whatever is needful for us to see that Jesus Christ is Lord, and our proper place is worshiping him. And this is our blessing in our life. And we pray these things in his name, amen. Uh, One of my favorite poems is T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi. Have you read this poem? T.S. Eliot was an Anglican, I believe, and he he gets so much of this scene right. He he gets a lot more right than we do in our popular songs. Perhaps you've heard the song, We Three Kings. Do you know this song? We Three Kings of Orient Are. There there are not three. Matthew doesn't say how many there are. (laughs) There there are three gifts, uh, but Eliot gets it right. This would have been a pretty impressive caravan. Uh, enough to put all of Jerusalem in an uproar over their arrival. The caravan, kind of like the caravan that took Joseph down to Egypt, that they saw coming from a pretty far way off, and were like, slavery. <laughs> well, they're not kings. <laughs> we three kings. Okay, 0 for 2. Uh, they're magi. <laughs> Uh, Eliot calls them Magi, the title of his poem, The Journey of the Magi, and he catches something of the strangeness of these figures. They're supposed to be strange. They're supposed to be shrouded in a sort of mist, an oddity. They're foreign. They're Easterners journeying to the West. And he catches something of that in their caravan with the servants desiring sherbet and silk 
and strange women. Technically, they are of Orient, uh, but Orient just means the East. Matthew doesn't tell us where they come from. All sorts of conjecture based on the gifts or ancient prophecies, but Matthew is nondescript in where they call home. Far more important to Matthew is simply the fact that uh, they are Gentiles. And not just Gentiles, but uh, Gentiles of the worst kind. (laughs) Magicians, those who consistently show up in redemptive history as opponents to the true servants of God. These are strangers from afar. They look strange to us as we watch them come. But then, as Eliot captures, they become strange to themselves. Or rather, their home becomes strange to them as they encounter this king, this king above all kings. So Eliot ends his poem. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. The encounter with the Christ sends these travelers back to what was once a familiar land. Now with eyes that see that it is indeed foreign, littered with strange gods and strange appetites, which have only become plain in the light of this glorious king. Matthew opens his gospel continuing to introduce us to Jesus of Nazareth. And here he wants us to know that this Jesus of Nazareth was born of Bethlehem. It's a big deal. It comes up later in Jesus' ministry. Isn't this one from Nazareth? Don't we know that the Messiah is from Bethlehem? Matthew says, well, there's a story there. And he's telling us how Jesus of Nazareth, the title he would have been known by, actually hails from Bethlehem in fulfillment of a long forgotten promise. And here he highlights that the nations come and worship him. Once upon a time, the nations came to see the temple and the palace of Solomon to gaze upon his riches that were unlike any that the world had seen, to hear of his wisdom, which was far superior even to the eastern wisdom known the world over. Now the nations come not to see a temple, not to see a palace, but to bow before an infant held by a woman in a hovel. (laughs) This is a remarkable testimony indeed. And as they lay their treasures at the feet of this infant, Matthew wants us to ask, who is this? That the nations would come and worship this child simply by virtue of who he is, not even based on what he's done. Matthew presents the newborn king, the greater Solomon, but he also presents responses to this newborn king. It's a really important element of this short scene. You get several responses. You get the response of Herod. You get the response of Jerusalem. You get the response of the high priests and the scribes. And you get the unlikely response of the Magi. These strange figures from afar. And this invites us to ask that all-important question for Matthew's gospel. 
Who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And how have you, how have I responded to who Matthew says that he is? Who the stars say that he is? Who the magi say that he is? Who Matthew says that he is? Who do you say that he is? So let's consider this morning, first, the greatness of the greater Solomon, and second, the responses to the greater Solomon. So first, the greater Solomon revealed. Matthew wants us to see the Christ as a king, as a true king. But he's not like other kings. He's unusual as far as kings go. His greatness is not in pomp and palace and wealth. His greatness is in his humility, in his lowliness, and in his goodness. And Matthew highlights that for us subtly in a number of ways. You can notice first that Matthew is very intent on us knowing that Jesus is from Bethlehem, that he was born in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. Mark how many times Matthew says Bethlehem. how he opens. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, then verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, verse 6, and you Bethlehem, land of Judah, and then once more for good measure in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. (laughs) It's a good reading strategy that if you encounter a word repeated over and over again in a short space of time, it's significant. (laughs) And we know the significance of Bethlehem. In God's providence, we just finished Micah. We know that Jerusalem had become pompous. She had become haughty. She had become just another kingdom of earth. And yet, Jerusalem was also the seat of David's house. And God had made promises to David's house that an heir of David would sit upon an eternal throne. So how would God deal with the haughtiness of Jerusalem and his promise to David? He says, well, we're going back to the origins. We're going back to the city of David, because that was the main significance about Bethlehem. It was David's birthplace. David wasn't much when he started, was he? He was a shepherd boy out in the field. Even Samuel didn't notice him. He had to go through six others before God had to tell him pretty explicitly, nope, that's the guy. (laughs) His start wasn't much. His origins weren't much. They were humble lowly. And they adorned a humble and lowly king. And this stands in stark contrast to Jerusalem, the capital, the big city, New York City, New York, New York. With all of its pomp and circumstance, but we meet in the seat of the kingdom of Israel, not a good king. We meet a pagan king. We meet Herod, who takes his place alongside of some of the worst kings the earth has ever seen. Matthew is at pains to show that the one who sits upon the throne in Jerusalem and thus Jerusalem itself has become no better than Pharaoh, no better than Nebuchadnezzar. A different king would be necessary, one who hails not from the big city, but from Bethlehem. And that's exactly what we meet here. 
But also Matthew tells us that this king is a child. It's another word that occurs regularly through this. Notice how often Matthew profiles that Jesus is a child. You see this a number of times in verses 8 through 12. This is more than just a commentary on the age of our Lord at this particular juncture. For Matthew, this signals humility. If anyone would enter the kingdom of heaven, let him become like this child. There's something about a child that Matthew wants us to see. Now, I assure you, Matthew does not trade in the Rousseauian notion of childhood innocence. But he does see something about childhood in terms of its lowliness, humility, utter dependence, unassuming air that he says is appropriate for us to mark as adults. And it's appropriate for us to consider that the eternal Son of God was a child. Children, how old are you? Two? Three? Four? Five? Ten? Jesus celebrated all of those birthdays. Our Lord had a mark on the doorframe. <laughs> Watching him grow up before his parents' eyes. We don't know that for sure, but you get what I'm trying to do there. <laughs> he was a true child. He grew up before his parents' eyes. He had a mom and a dad. They protected him. They raised him. He learned how to honor them. There's encouragement for that, in that for us and our children. There's encouragement in that for our teenagers. Teenage years are very difficult years. I remember teenage years. It was a tumultuous season. Jesus was a teenager. He lived perfectly through those years, yielding obedience and honor to his parents, though those years were difficult. This is a wonderful king, is it not? Children, you can pray to this king, knowing that he understands exactly what your soul is going through. Exactly what you're feeling. How wise and how good our God is in giving us such an understanding and sympathetic king. In the once and future king, at the beginning of the novel, we meet the wart. Well, the wart is not much to look at. He's a servant, he's pleasant, he's unassuming, and we watch as he learns a lot from his time as a child and as a servant, all of which prepares him for what is to come. Because at the end of book one, when he pulls the sword from the stone, if you haven't realized it yet, finally you see, oh, the wart is Arthur, King Arthur. What a good and understanding king he's going to be, himself being so low for so long. How well he's going to be able to rule the people with understanding and compassion. Because he has walked in the way that they have walked. He will be a good king. Matthew tells us his lowliness, his humility is, is a large part of why he is the most excellent king that has ever lived. He is the true shepherd king. Which is what Matthew presses upon us from the citation in Micah chapter 5. This king is the true shepherd He's the one who cares for his flock. The true shepherd is not 
interested in exploiting the flock, scoping out the best and the fattest sheep so he himself can have a nice meal or wear some nice clothes. No, a true shepherd leads and guides and cares for the flock. And above all, Jesus says the true shepherd lays down his life for the flock. It's not a coincidence that Jesus and Herod are juxtaposed here as two kings. Matthew's going to do this again later in the gospel when he contrasts Jesus to Herod's son. Herod's son, the one who killed John the Baptist. And right next to that, what does Jesus do? He sees the people and realizes they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he feeds the 5,000. The juxtaposition of two kings and asking, okay, who's the true shepherd? Who's the true king? Not the one who devours. The one who devours is a wolf. And wolves and shepherds are enemies. Both Herod and his son are covered in innocent blood, the blood of their subjects. Jesus is marred with wounds, for he sheds his own blood for his subjects, dying so that they may live. This is the great mark of the excellent king. This is his grandeur. This is what sets him apart from even the best of kings that have ever walked this earth. His glory is that he perfectly cares for his people. That he perfectly leads, that he perfectly guides, that he perfectly instructs, and that he perfectly lays down his life for the sins of his people. This is what makes him distinctly other when compared to the things, to the kings of old. Matthew says, here he is, Mary's son, God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God. Now, what say you? We live in a day of raging opinions, don't we? What do you think about this or that latest development? What do you think about what this or that politician or celebrity or artist said? But the truth is, when it comes to most things, nobody should care what you think. Because you probably shouldn't have an opinion on it anyway. <laughs> but there is a question that demands a thoughtful answer from everyone. And indeed, your response matters eternally. Who is this child? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth, born of Bethlehem? Because Matthew's not just interested in pressing upon us who he is. He's also interested in making us aware once more that the response to this king is of vital importance. It's something that he shows us from the beginning. We saw it already with Joseph. How will you respond to who this king is, this scandalous son of God? And so it is here. How will you respond to the greater Solomon whose glory is not to be seen in the terms and the conditions that most kings trade in? There's not much to mark him externally as the one who he really is. The response of faith is necessary. Will you heed the testimony that Matthew is laboring to set forth? Not all do. Not all have. Not all will. But some do. Many have. 
and more will. But note first the sinful responses. Note first the response of hatred. Herod immediately hates the child and makes plans to destroy him. This is an astonishing development here. You can mark in the narrative the unapologetic opposition to God. Herod's attempt to destroy the child is not a misunderstanding. Herod understands exactly what he's doing. They come announcing that there is a newborn king of the Jews. And then what does Herod ask of the religious leaders? Where is the Christ of God to be born? And then he makes plans to kill the Christ of God. This is flagrant and blatant opposition to the true and living God and his purposes. Herod is another iteration of the seed of the serpent who tries to kill the true seed of the woman. Or perhaps more plainly, Matthew presents him as the kings in Psalm 2 who gather together against the Lord and against His Anointed One. Many respond to the Gospel of Jesus Christ with utter hatred, cruelty. And it's a good reminder that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. The announcement of the Kingdom is spiritual warfare. We say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, and yet how many of those messengers have been killed and despised? A servant is not greater than their master. Why despise such a king? He's a child. He's not done anything. Matthew is at pains to say he is innocent through and through, and yet they're seeking his life. Why? Well, because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are wicked. If you and I are ugly through and through, well, the last thing we want is the light of day. Better to hide in darkness. Jesus is the light, and in his light, our ugliness is exposed, our cruel hearts indicted, our tiny kingdoms threatened. And so how do we respond? Well, let's put out the light. Now perhaps you're here this morning and you find that the name of Jesus Christ stirs in you a hatred and an animosity that you do not fully understand. Friend, that hatred is your sin. And Satan who would keep you in death. His light does expose our sin, but his light also gives life. Our flesh cries out, let Christ die so that my sin may live. Our flesh cries out, let Christ die so that my sin may live. Friend, let sin die in Christ so that Christ may live in you. That is the way of life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have felt that irrational hatred levied against you when you've tried to share the gospel with someone. What's the temptation there? To respond in kind, is it not? Cruelty for cruelty? Fist for fist? 
you can know, beloved, that the hatred that the gospel elicits is much bigger than you and me. It's not really about you. It's about this child. It's about this king. It's about the Lord whose claims are comprehensive and who fundamentally offends by virtue of who he is. It's not about you. It's not about me. And that means we can continue to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, that the Lord might show them mercy as he has shown us mercy. You can mark the next response, and it's fear. We know a lot about fear these days, don't we? Fear is rampant. I can't tell you how many people reference the zombie apocalypse these days, and they, they, they're saying it with some seriousness, like something is wrong. There's a lot of fear. Jerusalem responds in fear. Notice what he says. When Herod heard, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. This response of fear is common. The proclamation of the gospel. There's some who hear the gospel and they immediately understand the claims of Jesus Christ and the fact that they will upend their lives. The claims of Christ upend lives. Many of, this, many of us have felt this. Go in one direction, now I'm going a completely different direction. Most people want to just be left alone, I think. Don't they? They don't want peace. Most people just settle for quiet. I just, I just, just want to be left alone. I just want quiet. And Jesus issues this terrifying call to follow him. He says, leave everything. Leave your fishing nets. Your livelihood. Your family. Leave your dead. Leave your inheritances. Or as Martin Luther sings, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Jesus says all of it is subordinate to the call that I am making to you. Follow me. That's terrifying. It's terrifying for many people. So when Christ says, I alone forgive sins. I alone cleanse. I alone can satisfy Follow me. Many people say, well, that would mean too much change. That's frightening. I'm, I'm content with quiet. And I don't feel as if there's a need to find peace. Now, if you're afraid of the call of Christ, know that you're right. It is terrifying. It's terrifying to be sent from the shire. It's terrifying to brave the Barrow Downs and Bree and Moria and Orthanc. But you don't go alone. You go with a company. Christian goes with hopeful and faithful. But more than that, you follow after Christ. A king greater than Arthur. A king greater than Aragorn. And it's better to be with Christ in a terrifying ordeal than to be apart from Christ in the quiet of a world that is passing away. We walk with the one who commands the winds and the waves. Make no mistake, his call will take us through fire. 
take us through water. But he is the Lord over fire and water. And therefore we need not fear. But perhaps most unsettling for us as the church is the next response. The response of indifference from the religious leaders. Who should have been at his bedside in this narrative? The chief priests and the scribes. And yet they respond in staggering indifference. They know the scriptures. They know the scriptures better than you and I know the scriptures. 100%. 100%. But mark their response. Messengers come saying, the Christ has been born. And they say, well, he's in Bethlehem then. And then nothing. They go back to their cush jobs in the palace. Just another day at the office. I hope they serve sherbet today in the cafeteria. <laughs> we all know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. There is a danger for us that we are ever instructed to be mindful of. Scripture itself instructs us to be mindful. The great privilege of handling heavenly mysteries week in and week out is accompanied by the danger of losing our awe and wonder. Of responding not in faith, but presumption. How easy it would be to approach these things mindlessly without the careful attentiveness that they deserve. We gather each week to fellowship with the maker of heaven and earth. Bowing before the choicest king that heaven or earth has ever seen. Partakers of the spirit who hovered upon the ancient waters and we often yawn and attend to it like an afterthought or worse the call to worship goes forth and we think well i'm a bit tired so i don't think i'll come today i don't think i'll respond to the summons of the maker of heaven and earth to stand before him in awe of the eternal blessing that he's given me freely I'm a little sleepy. It's a unique danger for us, isn't it? Growing numb to the life that we encounter uniquely week in and week out. And it's true. It's true that it's a danger. Now, it is also true that we're not going to fully understand the blessings and the riches that have been bestowed upon us in this life. Nobody's going to reach sort of optimal posture in worship. But that doesn't excuse us from seeking the Lord's grace in giving us a little bit better of an understanding. In giving us a little bit more of a dependence upon his provision. A little bit more of a taste of the eternal blessing which he has given us to the praise of his glorious grace. It's a unique danger for the church. Let us seek the Lord's favor in posturing us aright before the fount of every blessing in which he has made us a true participant for his glory. Matthew is playing the true sign of understanding who Christ is 
is worship. Worship at cost. And that's what the the Magi indicate for us. Notice what Matthew wants us to see. These Magi are the least likely worshipers in this narrative. (laughs) But he also highlights that heaven was pleased to lead them to the bedside of the Savior. And that is great encouragement for us. Magi are magicians. They're steeped in astral worship. Steeped in the dark arts. There's an old interpretation of this scene. You can find it in Matthew Henry, but it goes well beyond him. That sees in the Magi worshiping at the bedside of the Christ. Christ triumphing over the darkest powers of Satan on earth. The powers that are true in the occult. Christ conquers them. I say that because I think the occult is kind of coming back. Have you noticed this? In popular entertainment, it's being everywhere glamorized. Once upon a time, magic was a theme in literature to help press upon us the truth of good and evil. There's Gandalf the White and Sormen of many colors. There's the magic by which Aslan creates Narnia, and then there's the White Witch. It was a device. It wasn't really magic. It was just a way to say that there's more going on in existence than meets the eye. Now it's a cult. If a cult shows up in literature, you better be sure it's being handled like Charles Williams handles it. That they're the bad guys. If it's a cult magic, they better be the bad guys. That's not going on right now. Have you noticed that in entertainment? Like the occult. They're heroes. I say this, not to get us freaked out over popular culture, although I think you should all be reading Tolstoy instead of watching TV anyway. I say this because if it does continue to go this way, how encouraging for us that we need not fear. Not even the darkness of power that's unleashed in the occult. Because Jesus Christ has made a public spectacle of the powers and principalities at the cross. He has plundered the camp of the enemy, binding the strong man. Magicians have been released from darkness and brought to the true light. That's Christ's power. There is nothing conceivable that could befall this earth, even facing a vampire in a grave. That should make the hearts of the children of God afraid. Because we belong to the one who has all power in heaven, the spiritual places, and on earth. Such that if we face a foe on earth, we say you can harm the body, but not the soul. If we face a foe from heaven, heaven has its dark regions, we can say... I'm baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have no authority here. I belong to Christ. It seemed like an important point. (laughs) But more 
directly applicable from Matthew's narrative is the fact that the unlikeliness of these figures worshiping isn't just in that they were steeped in the dark arts. It's that they consistently used those dark arts to oppose God and his people. Who are the Magi throughout redemptive history? It's Janus and Jambres, the opponents of Moses and Aaron. It's the advisors to Darius who are trying to manipulate this king to kill Daniel. These are the fiercest opponents to the surface, to the servants of God. These are enemies of God's people. God makes enemies into true worshipers. And this is the glorious gospel of grace. These are the ones that God delights to save. And let that be a reminder to each and every one of us. I don't care if you're a 10th generation Presbyterian. Or if you were baptized yesterday as the first member in your family. As offspring of Adam, you are the least likely worshiper imaginable of the true and living God. And God's glory is on display in that he saved you and me, the least likely worshipers imaginable. This also encourages us to continue in prayer for those that we deem unreachable. We do this, don't we? We survey our life and think, well, that person will never be a Christian. And we show ourselves to be fools. <laughs> Who seemed less unreachable than a magi in an ancient court? Who seemed less unreachable than a brilliant Pharisee who was trying to kill the church of Jesus Christ? Who seems less reachable than me? And yet here we are. There Paul is. There these magi are. Whoever it is in your life that seems beyond the unfathomable reaches of the grace and mercy of God, pray for them. Because they're not. No one is. There is no sin so heinous. There is no blemish so ugly that the blood of Christ cannot cover it and cleanse it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news indeed. Because it means that he came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And that implies plainly what this star is. This is not an ordinary star. This is not Halley's Comet. This is not a supernova. This is not a planetary confluence. This is nothing short of heaven arresting those imprisoned in darkest night to bring them to the true light of the world. There's another very old interpretation that understands this star to be an angel. You get very similar, about, very similar language about leading that's used of the angel of the Lord in Exodus through the wilderness. And very often in Scripture, stars and angels are intimately related. You can see this in Judges 5 and Job 38 and Revelation 1. I think there's a lot to commend this interpretation, but Matthew doesn't say it explicitly. In any event, we are impressed with the abilities of this star, such that we are led to conclude that this is not a natural heavenly phenomenon. The star leads them. 
The star disappears and then reappears. And perhaps most strikingly of all, the star designates with pinpoint accuracy a house. Gaze at the stars next time and see if you can figure out which house one of the stars is designating. This is not a natural star. This is the heavens being moved to bring worshipers. And you can mark in that the magnitude of work necessary to bring true worshipers. It's nothing less than the rearrangement of heaven. It's nothing less than the moving of one star to another place. And that should cause us to blush and hang our heads. Because it ought not to be such. This king is worthy of worship by virtue of who he is. The fact that it took God rearranging the heavens to bring about worshipers shows that the earth is dark indeed. That our hearts are dark indeed. But we can also rejoice that the maker of heaven and earth is willing to move stars to bring true worshipers to himself. And that's what they do when they reach their journey's end, isn't it? Matthew 2.10 When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy. These men would have been steeped in the finest offerings of earth. They came from the decadent courts of eastern kings. No pleasure would have been unknown to them. But I guarantee none of those things brought them joy. They didn't know joy until they saw this child. And then they went back changed. And those things that perhaps brought amusement lost their luster because they had tasted true joy in worshiping this king. And they yield to him costly worship out of this joy. They lay down these gifts, these expensive gifts. Is this costly worship? Yes and no. Yes, and that they would have fetched a hefty sum on earth. And they readily yielded, not trinkets, but the most expensive possessions that they had. No, in the sense that these gifts are of no comparison to what this king alone gives. True and abiding joy and life and the forgiveness and life that he alone brings. The king calls all to this same costly worship, which is really no cost at all in the light of what we are given in the Lord Jesus Christ. So come, all of you. Who is this child? Is he to be despised? Feared? Ignored? Or adored? What say you? Much depends upon your answer. May the Lord grant us all the eyes to see. Let's pray. Our great God, your word is truth. We ask that you would be pleased to attend it with your spirit, who alone brings life for the flesh is useless. 
We delight to know that you are seeking worshipers and ask that you would be pleased, Lord, to continue to raise them up, to continue to plunder the camp of the enemy, to continue to transfer those in darkest night into the kingdom of the beloved Son, the kingdom of life and light. As we heed this word, Lord, continue to posture us aright. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.